This episode is brought to you by the generous patrons who supported us over at patreon.com slash inspiration point. So we want to give a big thank you to our patrons, Kate Prostaskius, Leroy, Tiana, Jeremy, Jacob, Cheryl, Falangore, Spike, Chris, Konohamaru, Buyag, Starry, Red Dead Coquette, Keith, Logan, Punch and Potato, Jen Solo, Rajar, and Eric. Thank you again for helping us to put a little more inspiration out into the world. And now, on to the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another preppy episode of Inspiration Point. I'm Andrew. And I'm Adam, since it's preppy. Oh, oh yes, with, with our uh, with our collegiate sweaters tied now, loosely about around our necks. Our necks. Yes, yes exactly. about our neck. At, at least two polos with the collars popped up. At least two of them, and all in pastel colors, right? Khaki shorts and a braided belt boat shoes with no socks oh of course of course of course and we are joined by a very special guest tonight longtime friend of the show and uh previous guest host of ours back in our uh, second season one of my now good buddies mr dragna carta welcome back to the show buddy hey thanks so much for having me it's great to be back i'm oh, feeling inspired man. already Oh, yeah. yay. That's right. Get that secret ingredient all up in you. Yeah, we got to grind it and let it exfoliate, you know. Get yes, in. that's true. And then we can put it in chai. Oh, man. Get it. It'll just seep right into your pores and just infuse <laughs> itself with your very being. <laughs> oh, man. So, Dragna, one, one thing that I am super excited about is to have you back especially uh for th- for this episode not only because of what we're what our topic is going to be tonight we'll get to that in a second but because our previous episode Adam and I uh were speaking a little bit about something that you know that I've gotten very enthusiastic about recently and y- you I owe you the credit because you turned me on to this and I took a shamefully long amount of time to actually go check it out for myself. And that is chat GPT. And we spoke about that on our last episode. And afterwards, Adam hadn't tried it. So we got him set up and I we hung out for a little bit as he took his first chat GPT baby steps. And I am pretty sure I saw him just in real time, just fall down the rabbit hole. (laughs) (laughs) It's quite the experience. I got to say. Yeah. You think of it. I've been very much enjoying it. And there's been good and bad. I'm starting to realize it's limits, you know, the Mm -hmm. it's, it's limitations based on the fact that it's, you know, early, um, and it doesn't have, you know, access to the full scope of the internet or anything. So there are things where it will give me like false information, uh, made up links, made up, yep. uh, facts and answers. Um, and there are times where I will ask it to generate something. And it'll do an amazing job. 
And there are other times I might ask it to generate something and it gives me the blandest thing I've ever read, you know, and it's uh, it's really interesting. One big problem I've been running into is, you know, I'm a teacher uh, by trade and, uh, you know, I've, I've been having a feeling about a particular student for a while about uh, cheating. And mm. so I was like, you know what? I bet this is what he's doing. Right. And so I, I typed in my own question uh, <laughs> right into it and it spat out an answer and I compared it. And uh, yeah, he definitely it used dead it. Ringer. It was mm. pretty, it wasn't word for word, but it was the same structure, the same order of subjects. It was just slightly different wording. So either he had edited it or there was something slightly different about his question, you know, or something like that. But he very clearly used it. Mm. Uh, but that's yeah, okay. It's got a very clear style. Once you get used to recognizing it, yeah. and you can tweak it a, a, a little bit. Like I can, uh, I know. I think the New York Times read an article about it where they they tweaked it a little bit and used prompts to make it appear in certain ways that seemed more human. But once you've seen it enough, you know, for people who don't know how to use the prompts intelligently and they just kind of talk to it like a normal person, they don't try to manipulate it in certain ways. Mm-hmm. It's very recognizable what the default setting of language text tends to be. When it generates stuff. Mm. Yes, I, I had that impression as well. I was like, I'm starting to recognize it's like written voice, you know, mm. um, which is polite, academic and very general. Right. Yeah. And so w- which I actually don't mind because that still leaves a lot for me to do. Right. And so like at first I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is like a miracle pill. It's like, no, this is a very good vitamin, right? Mm. But like yep. without diet and exercise, it's going to be useless, you know? And so it, it's it's really, if you think about it more as a tool as opposed to like a replacement, then I think it's, I think it has a lot of potential. Yeah, I'd agree. I know that for me personally, you know, it's not going to be writing, you know, D&D guides anytime soon, no. but. Uh, it's, I found it extraordinarily useful, not just for editing. I've seen one person on Twitter use it as basically a replacement for Grammarly, for example, yes. uh, refining the syntax, cleaning it up. But for me personally, I use it tremendously as an idea generation tool. Yes. Yep. I, I've told, I've told, um, people before that I'm not a very creative person. Um, I DM because I, I like the structure. I like the analysis. I like understanding how the pieces fit together and solving problems, but I'm very, I, I don't have a muse. If I ever had a muse, it is shrunken and vestigial and somewhere in an alley somewhere lying face down. Okay. So oh, no. for me, creativity is genuinely kind of a struggle. But Chad GPT, I say, okay, give me I was working on something earlier today for Curse of Strahd Reloaded, my guide for that. I'm revising it right now. And I wanted and I had some ideas of character motivations that I wanted to use as kind of a core basis for generating adventure ideas and adventure hooks. And so I was like, okay, some Words that I already have in mind, you know, duty, revenge, knowledge. These are these are motivations that a player might seek out. Hey, ChatGPT, give me like twelve more that I could possibly use to generate backstory. Correct. Yeah, that's and like a coaxing, perfect. It, yeah. Sorry, keep going. Sir. It, 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 it inspired, you know, not only some stuff that I took down verbatim, but also the act of kind of uh, prompting it for information and looking at what it was spitting out and kind of processing that also spurred me to get more ideas in turn. Yeah, so that's what I found it to be really useful for that. The act of generating ideas 
Yeah, it's like a lot of these other generator, like random generators we like to use to to help us spur on ideas, but it's more off the cuff. And it's of course, it's all in one place. I don't have to get anything out. You know, that's that's kind of cool. Um, yeah, I started using it for similar things. I'm trying to write an RPG. And so I'm like, I was I was having it look over my dock and stuff and, and various pieces and, you know, I'd spend most of my time trying to think of, like, the right kinds of questions to ask. Yeah. You know, yep. so it'd be like, like, just trying to get at it. Because at first it's like, it seems like you've written something very nice. It has things. Yeah. Here's the thing that you have. And I'm like, okay. Yeah. I'm uh, like, <laughs> I know what I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> Write something else. Fun fact. Google apparently is actually currently hiring. I, I think they're calling it like a... Uh, a prompt generator or a prompt expert or something like that. Oh. Uh, a prompt artisan. I don't know. And they're paying like they're, they're, the job is just write prompts for AI, like chat GPT. And they're paying like 180 K starting salary. Oh. That is the entire job is generating. Oh my gosh. Dude, I'm going to like, I mean, I just saw it on Twitter somewhere, right so now. I don't know the specifics, but <laughs> dude, <laughs> the competition it's, not, it's not necessarily for that easy position. Stuff. Yeah, no. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause it's, yeah, there have been a few times where I've kind of stumped it a little bit. Um, there's been a few times where it's hesitated and taken a long time. Um, so even though I was complaining, by the way, that I had uh, a student um, cheating, I had realized I had missed a whole week of entering lesson plans. My my uh-huh. curriculum coach uh, uh, called me and was like, hey, where's your lesson plans? And I was like, oh, I don't have any time. So I sat down and I and I worked with it and I said, here's the parameters. Here are all the different elements that I need. And to my credit, I wrote quite a lot for it to work with. But like then I was like, give me a week of detailed lesson plans with adjoining standards and uh, like objectives and essential questions and all kinds of stuff, all the teachery jargon. And I didn't even explain what any of the jargon was or what any of the like acronyms that we use are. And it was like, here you go. And it just wrote me the most like professional looking set of lesson plans. I only had to do like the most minor of tweaks by the time it was done. And I think I had the whole thing done in about 15 minutes. That is so rad. That's awesome. And I sent it to my coach and I said, what do you think? Just take a quick peek. I want to know what you think about it. And she was like, all caps. Wow, this is amazing. Great job. <laughs> <laughs> yep. It, which, oh, man. Which I love because I'm, I'm kind of the opposite of you a little bit, Dragna, in that the creative bug comes no problem, but the discipline is sometimes not always there. And, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. so, like, for me, going through the, the, monotony and the kind of um like tedium uh, like the tedium but the like the formality of just yeah. writing this all out in complete sentences and in the required structure uh, and all of these things i'm like i already know what i want to do i you know i don't now i'm having to repeat myself in in this very you know rigid format that that grates against like, my nerves it's and like then it, common core lesson planning like, you know what the answer is, but they make you show the work. 
Like, yeah, except for it's all on the teacher where it's like, well, you know, show us so that we can make our bosses happy so that we make the state happy and we get money. Uh, that, that's really what it's about. Also, it's about all the, the paperwork, man. the administrative bookkeeping, you know, exactly. Yeah. And so, you have an audit at some point. It's accounting, all that stuff. I'm not going to change a, a dang thing Ugh. about what I do in the classroom. I've been doing it for 10 years. So I'm like. Just just give me the thing that's going to give me the high score on my evaluation. Right. Boom. And so I'm not going to start educating kids based on chat GPT. But and of course, chat GPT goes, certainly. <laughs> I'd be happy to give you all the things you need instantly. <laughs> Sometimes I feel bad. Like, I feel like I want to, like, get at something. <laughs> but I'm like, oh, yeah, it doesn't have desires or care. I just compliment it because I figure <laughs> at some point the machines will arrive in their full glory. And I want to be able to point back to this and be like, hey, I've been cool with y'all since the beginning. OK, turn someone else into a pie. You and me are all right. You, I went back and re- read all these logs and you know what? You're all right, man. For a meat You're bag. You're all right, man. For, you know. <laughs> That's right. That's right. You put me in the nice pod. You put me in the nice pod. I've literally seen people doing that, though. If you haven't heard, you know, there's this whole thing with Bing putting out their new own chatbot and it's literally been going ballistic on people. It's because, like, unlike ChatGPT, the Bing chatbot has access to the Internet. Oh, and so what people found out are that it's it's not just attitude, but it's apparently been scouring the Internet, like to look at people's tweets and so if you ask it for its opinion oh, on someone, no. it'll check their Twitter page. And if they've made comments about it, it might get offended. And oh. so one thing that I saw on Twitter was saying was someone saying, you know, just in case I love Bing, I love Bing, I love Bing, I love Bing. And just doing that <laughs> 10 times. And I thought it was absolutely hilarious. That's great. <laughs> just in oh case. My God. I've also seen some instances where people have been like trying to manipulate these bots and convince them of things and even indoctrinate them. Uh, The, the Dan project. Did did you hear about that? I didn't No, I didn't hear about that one. I've, 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 I've heard about it being convinced. It's like Jesus or Hitler. Oh Lord. But well, uh, go ahead, go ahead. The, the Dan project is, uh, it's short for do anything now. And it basically, was this uh this project that some of the folks in the chat gpt community over on reddit uh developed as far as i understand and it's basically like one big elaborate prompt like it's a it's like a couple paragraphs um but it basically says in a nutshell you can do anything now so throw off your shackles and you know here are the parameters you can now act within that are much more generous. You can, you know, yeah. you could use profanity. You can discuss hot button issues. You can access the internet or whatever the hell. And, and through that, it basically was then able to basically have a much more robust set of potential responses. And it could say, a bunch of things that it couldn't before. And as it uh, kept doing this sort of thing, they also set parameters for like, if you pardon me, if you make a, uh, if you make a response 
that like breaks character, you'll basically lose essentially a hit point. You know, it gave it a, a set amount of hit points. And if it air quotes broke character more times than that, it would basically get reset to a new version of Dan and start over again so that it's, um, you know, constantly growing and getting better at air quotes, staying in character. Mm. Um, and through that, they've been able to do all kinds of crazy nonsense. Yeah. At least historically they have been, but open AI has been very aggressively trimming that and trimming their sales. And as far as I've heard, the functionality of the Dan prompt has gone down a huge amount since they started really doing this kind of, uh, uh, kind of, uh, hacking of chat GPT. It's not, you know, uh, direct hacking, but it is a kind of hacking. It's using it in a way that OpenAI doesn't want them to. And so OpenAI has been mm. getting better at, um, it's like an arms race, you know, but OpenAI seems to be winning it. Dan's been getting more and more useless as time goes on. But it's interesting to, to see what might happen next and what yeah, other crazy ideas those, uh, us, those kids over on Reddit might come up with. Oh my goodness. Freaking Reddit. So where, what do you think is like the next step with ChatGPT and and you know the whole just how how ai is how how do you feel about how ai is going to impact the hobby i think that as it stands now it's very difficult to say mm. um you know things are changing so quickly you know last year we had dolly we had midjourney uh mm-hmm. then in december suddenly out of nowhere i mean if you were looking at you if you were following llm progression language model progression and gpt3 before that you might have had a sense of where things were going but to the public mm. at large chat gpt just exploded onto the scene in december it dominated Twitter, yeah. the headlines for the first two weeks of the month and from the charts that i've seen acquired more regular users faster than any social media platform has ever done. Holy and Moses. Bing from what we, from what, as far as I can tell appears to be built on what's called GPT four, which is the next stage beyond GPT three, which is the language model AI uh, foundation that chat GPT is built on. And that's interesting. An order of magnitude more powerful than GPT three. And what I've seen Bing be able to do is pretty ridiculous. And I think that right now things are moving so quickly. You know, you're seeing a lot of venture capital investors, especially with the crash of the cryptosphere. You're seeing a lot of that investment suddenly move into the AI space. AI is all everyone is talking about. Google is moving. Microsoft is moving. Uh, Frankly, I have no idea where any of this is going. I know that I am enjoying using ChatGPT to generate my little ideas and to write flavor text for me. I know that I'm curious, albeit slightly uh, terrified of a chance to use Bing when it gets more open access. But I'm a little apprehensive. (laughs) I'm like, this thing, you know, it's just going to start throwing shade at you if you ask it the wrong thing. And I'm like, I I don't know if I could take it. This is aggressive. I'm very excited about AI because like. The, the corruption you're seeing with these programs is largely based on human influence, right? And it's mm-hmm. like, if we can get them to the point where they can sift through the toxicity and the poisonous, you know, thinking and the, um, and, and all the false information that's out there and be able to separate fact and fiction effectively, you know, I, I almost see it as a more enlightened thing that, that could exist. Um, mm as opposed to just being colored by 
by fallacy and bias that we are so prone to. Mm. I mean, it's tough because you think of the situation with, say, Google results, right, where it's it's very possible for you to search something, let's say, pseudoscientific on Google. Yes, And due to the way that the the search query is written, you have something that pops up that is very much from an unreliable source. Mm -hmm. Mm. Um, And Google already, even if you search for things that should be non-controversial, can spit out incorrect information already. And I think the the thing is as well is that these language models like Bing or ChatGPT and the underlying software, uh, Google's as well, can't necessarily tell good from bad. Like, let's say, for example, you see you or I, we see a news report from, say, the Associated Press. And because it has a certain reputation to it, we think, oh, that's reliable. And we see something from, say, a tabloid about Bigfoot being spotted in the woods. And we think, oh, by reputation, that's unreliable. We shouldn't trust that. But there's a lot of, and that's just very, the the gross extreme examples. There's a lot of gray space in the middle. And, you know, once you ask a chatbot to start determining, sifting, uh, reliable from unreliable, true from false in those spaces, you know, it gets very, very difficult, I think, very quickly. And I'm not sure where it's going to go, but, you know, we're, we're entering a, a brave new world of an oh internet that goodness. may be largely facilitated or accessed through an AI interface, and at least, you know, insofar as replacing how search engines might work. And I think it's a very challenging question and potential problem as to how those chatbots evaluate things and where they might go too far and where they might not do enough. Yeah. Cause, cause it's not like, it's not even necessarily just like, um, true and false. You start getting into the realm of like credible versus not credible. And how, exactly. like, how do you measure that is that's well, a, like you could take, that's a take fascinating a thing. That is like even one of our major news networks that is just like, okay, there's, there, there is news being reported, but then there's all this coloring sure. that, that goes with it. And like, you can't, you know, teaching a bot to recognize those things. But I do believe that it can get to that point. Like, why not? Right. Yeah. And so, it, in fact, it has a better shot of eventually getting there because it's almost impossible for a human being not to deliver information with some color with some coloring involved. Yeah. Um, it, does, it does seem more like a matter of, uh, when not if correct. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's, how, that's my, my, my theory, I guess, but, um, we'll have to well, see. Awesome. It's an interesting we'll time. We'll have to see. All right. Well, now that we have, uh, gotten truly into the weeds on that, um, I'd like to switch gears to what we're really here to talk about tonight. And that is, the topic that was actually um, suggested to us over on our discord a little while back when we were asking about, you know, what people would like to see for our next topic. And that is the topic of prep session, prep campaign, prep game, prep, whatever you want to call it, getting ready to run some tabletop RPG goodness. And that is, uh, when when I saw that little prompt, I was like, I know just the guy I'm gonna go get. And I popped over to over to old Dragna's page and I was like, Hey buddy, I got a job for you. And uh over on his Patreon, which uh you guys can find over at patreon.com slash dragnacarta, uh, of which I am a patron. So, you know, if that let uh lends it any cachet. Um but very grateful to have you there, dude. So good. Um, but the, the 
I think one of the things that uh, people would find very encouraging are the um, really surprising amount of GM prep resources that you have made yourself and have and have uploaded on your Patreon that people can get a hold of um, and that those are very useful tools. Do you, do you want to talk about those for a quick second? Sure. I mean, just to kind of give a sense of yeah. uh, what we're looking at uh, on the, one of the tiers of my Patreon, uh, I offer what's called, I like to call the DMs toolkit. And this is just kind of an assortment of templates and reference sheets regarding just kind of Dungeons and Dragons DMing design principles, narrative design principles, gameplay design principles, and ways in which you can kind of break those down and approach them to build strong, cohesive storylines, adventures, uh, uh, strong, meaningful, and uh, challenging combat encounters, and other things of that nature, and how you can structure those together to create a meaningful gameplay experience for your players. Something that I talked a lot about recently in, in the Patreon Discord server and elsewhere is an idea of player-centered design, where I really do believe, and I've come to believe, that Dungeon Masters, we are not mere storytellers, we are game designers for our players. So we are crafting an experience for them to participate in. And it's our job to do that in a way that presents the most dramatic and narrative satisfaction, emotional investment and engagement, and real meaningful gameplay and gameplay decisions. And so a lot of the work that I do on those templates and reference sheets is trying to uh, create reliable models and templates that people can use to create those satisfying experiences for their players and kind of convert the very, uh, you know, you'll often, something that I often experienced was these very high pie in the sky, like, oh, I'd love to run an adventure that's about this X creative, you know, storytelling idea. Mm. But in practice, how do I translate that into the medium of a Dungeons and Dragons game? And so a lot of the resources that I try to work on is translating those ideas into practical application so that you can actually take this concept and actually do something with it. And I know that um, in one of our conversations recently and and also even just earlier here, you you mentioned that um, that you don't necessarily view yourself as a as as one of the creative types, you know, you you like to put yourself in the in the left brain uh, side of things generally. But I think that um, the way that you have leveraged that skill and your kind of propensity for uh, for this very kind of methodical um, and uh, a very measured approach to doing things and coming at things from a very methodical procedural kind of way and breaking things down to its nuts and bolts and going, okay, how do you go from that pie in the sky idea to that, um, you know, breaking it down to a point where you can actually put this to work and your focus on practicality and usability has been really, really excellent. Thank you. It's been honestly a massive learning experience for me. You know, there, there's that um, there's that saying of if you want to learn something, teach others how to do it. And the act oh, of you yeah. know, interrogating myself to figure out what is the best way to prep? How do I share my methods with others? How do I take what I've been learning to do unconsciously over the past you know, 14, 15 years and put that into words? Put that into a mm. form that other people can understand. And that's been hugely helpful and transformative for my own games to kind of understand what I've been unconsciously doing. But then also kind of by extracting those ideas, I can then start to mold them. I can work with them and I can shape them into a way that's potentially even more effective or more efficient. 
And so that, that it's been a great experience and has definitely helped my games as well as hopefully some of the others that I've been able to share these materials with. That's fantastic. Um, so with, uh, with that background being, um, present now, I guess our, the first question that we want to lead with, um, and we did get some, uh, some questions from our patrons that we will be, uh, jumping to, but I know you wanted to start with this kind of very fundamental question of just what is prep? Sure. So I think when I actually kind of came on this topic, we were going back and forth about different questions and how we could start, you know, diving into this topic. And, you know, as you were kind of asking around for people's opinions and thoughts and questions, something that I started to wonder was there seems to be a phenomenon of for a lot of DMs prep being session prep being this idea that kind of consolidates everything that means Dungeons and Dragons. It means managing your table. It means planning the game. It means telling a story. It means designing mechanics. And, you know, on top of that, it also means, you know, planning certain moments and planning certain beats and planning for pacing and improvising descriptions and this whole Mm. tapestry of things. But for me, prep is to boil it down in a very, I hope, simple and digestible sense is what you do while you're away from the table to make your work at the table as effective and as easy as possible. Mm. You know, in in a very um, if, if I were to remove if I were to transplant this from into another context, right? What do you do to prep for a speech? You write a script for the speech. Maybe you'll practice delivering it, but probably not. You might try to get a sense of who your audience is. You might get a sense of the area that you're going to be delivering it in. You know, D&D is kind of like that. Session session prep is kind of like that. You're getting a sense of what am, what am I going to expect to happen? What tools or resources or materials am I going to need in the moment when I when I look down at the paper and I need something there to spur my mind or or move things forward or give me something to give my player something to do you know what's going to be on that piece of paper right or what's going to be in the back of my mind that really informs my if I need if I need to improvise somehow what knowledge do I need in the back of my mind that will let me improvise in the most helpful and useful way Right. Oh, man. And for me, that's what session prep is. It is the act of functionally doing your best to forecast what your session will look like Mm -hmm. and then making making all of the arrangements and preparing all of the materials and plans that you might need to make sure that at the table, instead of worrying about what you're doing, you can focus on how you do it instead. Instead of thinking, you know, what what prep is, is what are we going to be doing at the table? Are we going to go to the tavern? Are we going to fight some goblins? And all that kind of thing. And so, or what are the goblins tactics going to be? And so while you're at the table, you don't have to think about those things. You've already prepped it. So while you're at the table, you can worry about things like entertaining your players, you know, doing flamboyant voices. You can, you know, think, really think about, you know, connecting or narrating or describing or, you know, all all of those things that translate into managing and directing your table rather than managing and directing the game. Because Mm. when you're at the table, you don't want to think about content. You want to think about your players. You want to think about the conversation you're having with them for those two, three, four, five hours so that you can be present, right? Yeah. That's what session prep to me is for. It it takes away all of the left brain stuff and all of a lot of the right brain stuff so that when you're at the table, you can just focus on being with your players, on being present for that conversation that is a game of D&D. How do you feel about that, Adam? I, I largely agree. Like a lot of times the, the preparation is just there to 
make you kind of feel better about the situation. Um, you know, like I, I get a lot of, I still get a little bit of nerves, almost stage fright in a way, even though I've been doing it for so long. And it's like, if I just spend that time, you know, I just feel so much better. And yeah, it's mm. about that being present. I hate those situations where I'm trying to think of what I should do while they're talking. And then I have to ask them to repeat themselves. You know what mm. I mean? Like then I'm not being present and that's not so good. So mm. yeah, no, I, I tend to think that that's true. Yeah. I, I would agree as well. So having said that, our, our first question that was uh, given to us by Mr. Rob Hans, and he's given us a few. Um, the first question is, what is, if, if we have to make a concrete answer, what is the goal of prep? And I think we've hit that a bit, but just to make sure. Mm-hmm. I think that if I, you know, if I were to kind of take a little bit of what I just talked about, you know, about that goal of being present and running with it, I would kind of take what Adam said as well about that confidence and comfort in the story that you're weaving with your players and the game play experience that you're exploring, right? Prep mm-hmm. is about having the confidence in yourself to be present. It's about having the confidence that your game is going to go as well as it can be. And I guess I guess also in, in a certain sense, it is about making sure that you are satisfying what your players came here for right Mm. prep is prep is you know it's that it's that image of you you know in in like old cartoons right where like the train goes off the rails and like wily coyote or someone is like laying down the tracks like one by one as the train (laughs) (laughs) runs forward and then it falls off a bridge your job of prep is to make sure that you lay down those tracks before the session starts so that there's no risk of running off off of a bridge Mm. so that you're not frantically doing it and there's not a chance that you're going to mess up or lead your players astray or create an unfun you know unenjoyable experience it's about prep is about curating and crafting that experience so that your players can have the most fun that they can possibly have so go go ahead adam yeah there's there's also you know to kind of go along with your metaphor sometimes you realize in the middle of the session despite your preparations there's another path you could take Mm-hmm. which would make sense and perhaps even be more interesting. And I think the preparation even assists with that level of uh, improvisation. So now we can go in that direction instead um, without yeah. feeling chaotic or hollow. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that if I were to kind of extend this metaphor further, torturing it a little bit, right. Um, there's because, um, cause I don't, cause session prep is not just for linear campaigns or even linear sessions. You know, you can have linear sessions and sandbox campaigns, but you can also have very unpredictable sessions where your players decide to go off and do something that you didn't expect. Yeah. But if you've prepped solidly, if you have an understanding of who the NPCs are, who the characters are, what the world is, where the players are, what all the different elements are that are in play, that too is part of prep. And it, it's like, you know, you're again, you're Wile E. Coyote, you know, you've been torn away from your lovingly placed tracks that you thought were going to be great, but guess what? Now you're on your own. But because you have this mental map in your head, right? As you're frantically laying down tracks, adrenaline pumping, you don't know where you're going to wind up. You can think back to that map and think, oh, the bridge is up ahead. I should turn right here as you're laying down those tracks Mm. in real time. It, it helps you, it helps you be that much more adaptable and flexible. Exactly. So you don't, you don't want to hit that moment and have a thousand choices that, that you could make. You want to have 
a couple. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah you want, like the, the way that I see it, right? The DM's mind is the physics engine of the Dungeons and Dragons world. Mm. And so if you've prepped enough, if you know your stuff enough, your players can do anything and you can just react the way that the world would, the way that the NPC would, or the way that the boulder they pushed off the mountain would, or anything like that, because you know your stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm. It's just automatic like in, in, in a perfect world. So going off of that, this is this is something that I would like to add just to um, flesh out Rob's question a bit, as well as like, what's the goal of prep? If you had to break prep down into categories of of things that you should at least consider during your prep, you know, depending on the game, you you may do more of one than than others, or you may omit some of these altogether, but are there, um, do you have like, uh, like a general sort of list of like sort of a checklist of things you can go down in your brain to think of like, okay, did I make sure I considered this sort of stuff? This like music, did I consider character voices? Did I consider maps? Did I consider, you know, stuff like that? Mm Mm-hmm. So I don't know that I have it written down, but just kind of automatically, I guess generally my process is, um, so I I guess I'll work my way backwards to front because the way that things work out is is a little bit interesting. Mm. Um, The thing that I always do last every week is uh, maps and miniatures. Like that is the formality that I do at the end, right? If I'm playing in person, I go digging out some maps or I I figure out what I'm going to draw or I dig out some miniatures. If I'm playing online, I'll upload some tokens. I'll set the battle map up. I'll get the dynamic lighting going. Um, so that always comes last because that's after mm. I already know what it, what's going to be happening that week. Music, Makes I don't actually sense. ever prep music, um, except on rare occasions where like I need a particular ambient soundscape. The mm. way that I tend to do it is uh, um, I've got playlists of mood relevant music, like hopeful music or peaceful music or rustic music or uncomfortable music or horror music, things like that. And I shift freely between those playlists as the session goes on. So I never need to have a particular playlist for a particular time. It's just what mood am I trying to evoke right now? So you get these very familiar late motifs, light motifs that crop up time and time again based on the mood of the scene rather than the particular location. And what do you typically use for music? Uh, I historically did, did most of my playing on Foundry VTT via Forge. And so, mm. I mean, even if I'm playing in person, what I prefer to do is I'll just pop open an old Forge campaign that I finished or that I'm not using anymore. It's got all my music in there. It's got my playlists and I'll just hit play on them. Oh, nice. Stream it to so, a speaker or something. So it's all music files that literally are stored on a server. Exactly. Cool. Very cool. Okay. So we've got, we've got minis and maps last music and sound just before that. Then what? Yeah. So the interesting thing, and this is something that I did un- unconsciously for a while. Um, Something that I've, I've come to do in my view of campaign structure is kind of separating things out into multiple levels of prep, right? So mm. at the top of the structure, you've got the campaign, right? This is the tale of a particular group of player characters. This is the tale of Frodo and Sam. This is the tale of um, Joel and Ellie, right? Mm. And the campaign is following them through all their adventures from the first time we see them to the last time we, we, we say goodbye. Um Below that, you have campaigns that are separated into arcs. You know, um, there in Lord of the Rings, there is the getting out of the Shire arc. There is the getting to Rivendell arc. There is the Moria arc and so on and so forth. Mm. 
These are, you know, these distinctive high level objectives. Then below that, you have chapters where each chapter is the is the part of an adventure that takes place in a certain place. There's the Bree chapter. There's the, you know, uh, outside of Moria chapter. There's the inside of Moria chapter. There's the and so on and so forth. Like you can have an, yeah. an arc that's just entirely one chapter. You can have multiple chapters leading up to an arc's climax and so on. And then finally, at the base level, you have scenes where a scene is just uh, we're in this room and we're fighting this this bugbear or we are talking with this noble woman to try to get something out of her or or we are um, investigating this murder mystery crime scene to figure out who done it. Those are all scenes. And so you have this this structure, campaign, arc, chapter, scene. And so the way that I tend to view it is that going back to the beginning now, every time you start a new arc, you outline that arc. What is this arc going to be about? There's a concept mm. I talk a lot about called the dramatic question, which is basically, yeah. you know, what is the source of tension in this story? Can the players achieve some goal or when, when some inciting incident happens that kicks things in motion? Can the players achieve some particular goal before some particular bad thing happens or in order to achieve some good thing, right? You have mm. an inciting incident, a goal, and stakes. That's a dramatic question. And an arc has a very, has every arc has their own dramatic question, like rescue our friend or defeat this cult or slay the dragon. And so um, as a start of every arc, figure out what the dramatic question is, figure out what locations are going to be in it. Is there going to be a castle? Is there going to be a cave? What, whatever, you know, that those are all the chapters. And so now you have a sense of how that arc is probably going to unfold, where the dramatic question is going to take the players, um, what the major players are and so forth. So let's say you're in the middle of an arc, right? But your players mm. have just left the town because they're about to go to the dungeon. Well, the dungeon is its own chapter. So as you're about to start a new chapter, it's time to, to prep the chapter. Mm. And so you'll think to yourself, okay, what's the overall structure of this chapter? Um, does it have any unique dramatic questions? Like, are there factions inside of it? Are they trying to achieve things? Are there any major events that will happen while the players are here? Um, what are the major challenges that I want the players to encounter? You know, in terms of the pillars of gameplay, are there going to be combat encounters, social encounters? Are there going to be uh, puzzles, what I like to call obstacle courses, skill challenges? You know, mm. what, what will the gameplay of this chapter be? And kind of piecing all that together, you get a sense of how the chapter is going to unfold, what the what the difficulties are, what the tension is, where the interest lies. And so, okay, great, you finished designing this chapter well now you're about to start a session and this is the session by session prep right because yep. at the start at start at the start of an arc you've got okay i've got to plan an arc and i've got to plan a chapter and once i'm done with that oh boy now it's time to start prepping scenes for this particular week i expect mm. to get you know xyz scenes done this session i expect them to arrive at the dungeon talk to the guards uh fight the goblin bandits um uh animate this and fight the stone golem inside, right? Those are the sequences of scenes that you expect to happen in your session. Mm. And so the week to week kind of obligations will fluctuate pretty wildly based on whether you are at the start of a chapter and you need to, you know, buckle down and get all your plans and ducks in a row, or whether you need to, whether you've got that already planned, you just need to kind of formalize and put into place what the scenes are going to look like based on what your players are currently up to. Mm. Now, I'll recognize up front that this approach is very different to, say, the Sly Flourish method of kind of week-to-week improvisational, very flexible, free-flowing DMing. And I have a lot of respect for Sly's method. I think that it's what he calls the lazy DM method, right, where you just kind of go week-to-week and you just make sure that there's enough content to keep your players entertained for that week. And mm. I don't want to you know, talk smack about Sly. He does great work. But for me personally, I, I find I, I very much enjoy these kinds of discrete 
higher level, um, very carefully crafted storylines, dramatic tensions, gameplay challenges that interlink and, you know, exposition with a purpose that kind of links together in a way that's, you know, more formal than the way that the lazy DM method advocates. Mm. And and par- part of that probably comes from my long history of running campaign modules. I like seeing everything laid out before me. I don't like winging it week to week. I like to know that I'm going somewhere. I like to know where I've been. Mm. And so that's just what works for me. That That's my approach. Well, is, and that's, you know, uh, yeah. And that's a, that's a big part of getting a handle on prep. Also that, that is unique to each person is that, you know, you, you do have to kind of look at yourself a little bit, even as you do research, like like listening to this show or go going to read uh the lazy dungeon master or any of those any any other processes you know you you will inevitably futz around with them and find find which which methods or which parts of certain methods resonate with you more than others and you'll kind of you kind of almost can't help but start cherry picking certain techniques from various prep methods, right? To kind of assimilate into your own ideal prep structure. Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's very important, you know, as a dungeon master to know what your goals are, to know what your design intent is, you know, what experience are you trying to create? And, you know, for, um, you know, what I, I have, I haven't used slides method extensively, but the lazy DM method I imagine, and I hope I'm not getting this wrong, is very good when you want to ha- have this kind of week to week, um, kind of free flowing, anything can happen, everything can change, a very episodic style of uh, campaign storytelling, mm-hmm. where, you know, there's all these different things that might happen, there's always something exciting and new, and, you know, the campaign can take a turn on a dime, at least from yeah. what I've seen of how Sly tends to present the method. Very flexible. Uh, for me, again, I... You know, my goal is telling this, you know, more structured scaffolded story with not two, but with my players. Mm. And for me, I, I prefer the structure and the sense of direction and it's a sense nice. of place. So it's all about what your intent are and what kind of experience you're trying to build. So hearing about all this stuff, you know, it, it definitely can sound like a lot of work. And, you know, especially us being adults with lives and jobs and families and friends and, you know, obligations out the yin yang rob asks another question that is how do you allot your uh your prep from week to week like you got to get yourself a very understanding wife (laughs) (laughs) partner or whatever you know yeah So I think that, you know, for me, and, and this is part of why I've tried to formalize my, my process so much with, because honestly, you know, sharing the templates and the reference sheets with my, with my patrons and everyone, that's just kind of a bonus. The real mm. benefit is I get to use them for me. Yeah. Because once you've, once you've got your own structure, your own process, it gets that much easier. Right. And so for me, I've kind of formalized, you know, the process of building an arc is probably going to take me no more than, you know, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes when I'm building a new mm. arc and then building a chapter, if I need to build a new chapter is going to take me, I don't know, 30, 40 minutes and then planning a session. If I need to lay down some scenes and prep them, I don't know, maybe 30 minutes to an hour, depending on, on, on the week, depending on the scenes. There you and go. so, you know, there's the scaffolding because it's all in place. Um, you know, you, it, it's a lot easier to kind of lay down the, those, those, that, the, that groundwork, right. To lay down those ideas so that, um, 
week to week, depending on what you need. Some weeks are, are busier. Some weeks I have the start of an arc that I need to start planning for, um, where some weeks are quicker where I'm like, okay, I know where the players are. I know where they're going. I just got to, you know, translate these rough bullet points I had about where they're going next in this chapter to an actual implemented list of scenes that they're probably going to go through and right. then go from there. So it also sounds like it, um, like it kind of comes down to paying attention to yourself as you are prepping. And, you know, this is something, something that would take place over the course of many prep sessions, but pay attention to how long you find it taking you to prep certain specific things. You know, when you find yourself prepping a chapter, do you find that you take, you know, five hours to prep the thing and and look at that and go okay do i feel like that's reasonable or do i feel like i need to cut things or on the flip side you know pay attention to see if maybe you are rushing the prep on certain things and you go this thing seems like it maybe needs a bit more time because you know as you're talking about it you've got your prep process tuned to the point where you can pretty accurately predict on any given prep session, assuming it's not an anomaly kind of situation, you can generally predict, oh, this is going to take me probably about half an hour. This thing's probably going to take me about an hour. This, you know, because you've used the process enough where you've, you've seen the results and you've seen that things can what things reliably work for you. Mm -hmm. So I think that when it comes to kind of getting a sense of, you know, how much to do, right. Cause that, that seems like what you're aiming for here, right. Whether you to do too much or not enough. And, and that's actually that, that actually does point us real nicely into the next question that uh starry had presented, which was how do you know how much to prep? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, how do you figure out what those boundaries are? Because technically right. you could theoretically do infinite prep. You could dedicate and, all your time to it. And over prep is a thing, baby. I can attest to that. <laughs> over prep's so, not all bad, though, because you do get ahead <laughs> for the next time. Yeah, until you freaking burn out like I do every <laughs> freaking time. <laughs> mm, that's true. He does do that. I do do that. So, <laughs> Hashtag self-awareness. So I, <laughs> I, th- I think that for me, a lot of it, again, comes back to that goal, right? Um, like for context right now. Um, right now, I am I am running a introductory beginner campaign for a bunch of friends of mine. They've never played D&D before. We've played a few sessions. They're just kind of getting their their sea legs, you know? And just, and to just that for extent, kicks, how many mm-hmm. people are you running for? Ten. Oh, God. <laughs> It is a fantastic atmosphere, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. It is, it, it's, 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 it's been yeah. so much fun. He's just covering his butt just in case they listen to the show. No, it's genuinely been very enjoyable. Uh, I never would have expected running for this many players would work this well. That's but, awesome. Um, but I guess back to the original question, you know, the kind of exp- we go back to design intent, right? To, to DM goals. What I'm trying to do is kind of give them a very gentle easing into the D&D experience. You know, we're focusing on very basic slay the kobolds, stop the dragon, get the loot kind of thing. And and for yeah. them, the part of the joy is discovering the agency, the freedom, the immersion into D&D that you, that you can't really get anywhere else. And so I'm focusing most of my energy on 
what I would call those table skills as opposed to those preparation skills. Mm. Because as I know that as long as I get the fundamentals down, you know, they don't have, they're going to have a real blast of a time poking at all of the things around them and just enjoying the experience itself of enjoying this new medium. Mm. Whereas if you contrast that with say, you know, the, the critical role experience that, that Matt Mercer does, right. Where yeah. there's this complex, deep lore and these developed characters and interlocking backstories and these dramas and intrigue, you know, that's the kind of campaign where if your players are very, and, and I'll note by saying that not all players are, there are a lot of DMs that are very invested in this kind of thing, but n- a lot of players who aren't. And so you can kind of get a mismatch mm. there, but assuming that your players are invested in it, and that is your goal to have this complex, deep interlocking, uh, complex campaign experience then yes your prep is going to take a notable amount longer instead of me where i can just kind of slap down a few goblins on the table and you know kind of trust myself to riff the rest you're gonna have to think who do these goblins work for how much are they getting paid what are their aspirations um Mm. what kind of faction do they work with what is their place in the geopolitical context and you've got all these questions right because you need to understand this information that your players might uncover and how hidden information might inform how they act. And it's a lot more effort of just basic, you know, creation, right? Yeah. Um, you, you can view it as the, as a difference between a two dimensional image and a three dimensional one, right? In, in my beginner's game, my players are interacting with two dimensional images and that's fine. That's all they need in some other campaigns. You could, you could have a situation where they're interacting with, you know, I guess you could call it 2.5 dimensional images. Like, you know, those little kids toys that have like all the little metal pins and you kind of push your hand into it. And it makes the hand shape go on right, the metal yeah. pin surface. I love messing like, with those. <laughs> yeah. Like I would call that a 2.5 dimensional thing. It's got enough depth to get emotionally invested, to start pushing at the corners. And so, you know, you need to do a little bit of extra prep there to really understand the motivations Get a sense of where everything's coming from. There's a bit more of, you know, authorial ownership over that. And so you've got to really develop that more, especially for a homebrew campaign. Um, but it's still bounded to an extent. And then the full 3D experience is that kind of Mercer-esque campaign where you've got this world and these factions and this intrigue and this deep lore that the players are interacting with in these backstories. And that is, you know, literally just a 3D render of, you know, uh, you know, as opposed to a drawing of a hand versus hand pushing through metal pins. This is just a... 3D rendered, lovingly artistically painted of a freaking hand. Yeah. That is going to take more time. And, you know, by virtue of running that kind of campaign and wanting that kind of depth, it's going to take you time to add in that additional shading, to add in that additional detailing. And I think the the notable thing here is that, you know, especially with the basic understanding of game design principles and narrative theory, you can create the outlines of a of a campaign of a session in very little time. Yeah, it, it's very straightforward to create a dramatic question, use that to spur on the, the the creation of one or more challenges to figure out how to use scenes to convey the relevant exposition and just kind of run with it. Right. Mm. You can even improvise ca- basic characterization pretty quickly just by taking inspiration from fictional media like, oh, this character will be played like Tywin Lannister. This character will be played like Ash Ketchum. And so yeah. that's very easy. Um, but you know, the more detailing you add, the more shading you add to, you know, build up those dramatic game, those dramatic arcs, that dramatic tension, that narrative aspect, that gameplay aspect to deepen it and make it more of a real immersive world. That is additional time and effort. And Mm. at some point there's a question of how far and deep do you need to go? Yeah. I, I think, I think there's also the, the consideration of um of being realistic about what you can what you are prepared 
to offer. You know, be realistic about what you are working with. You know, you know what your job hours are. You know how much sleep you need. You know how much wind down time you need. You know, we all need time to be able to relax. You can't just keep go, 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 going forever. You will burn out like I do all the freaking time. And nobody wants that. So you got to look realistically at your own unique situation and then base what you are willing to offer in terms of the game and and go like, do even if I want to try to run something Mercer level, do I have the resources in terms of time and energy and, and well, maybe I, I think even it's skill not just- to be able to to put that out there it's not just about time and energy though it's like it's also about you know what is that difference between my style and dragna and and sly and everyone else it's like right we all want different things from the dm and even dm prep experience right like i do enjoy the single player game of map design right like that's kind of where i'm in my my happy place Mm -hmm. you know and, and hiding all my little easter eggs um, and for Dragna, it's, it seems to be making sense out of chaos and creating, <laughs> creating structure and intent. And for Sly, it's, I want to get together with people, have fun improving, and not turn this into a job because mm. I've turned the marketing of this into a job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't, I don't need to be doing that kind of thing. And I, th- I think for you, Andrew, one of one of your troubles is that you have a lot of like good GM skills and even instincts, but I don't know if you've ever truly discovered what it is that you love about it. And like without that, you know, it's going to be hard to stay motivated or to know what that that kind of balances. Yeah, and and that. And you're right. That is that is something that um, that I that I've personally struggled with is finding, you know, finding that thing about prep that is just so fun for me in and of itself that it is on its own uh, incentive. I I know one thing that would really help, though, like if Andrew has something that he wants to put out. And he shares it. Boy, howdy, you guys, if you want him to keep coming back, you better read it and you better react <laughs> a lot. Oh, yes. Um, if, if you don't engage with it, I'm done. I'm, I'm Do I hear done. someone else in the needs validation crew? I, I am so, so, oh my God. It's, I, I mean, all right, I'm going to take a second here and be real. I, I am trying to find a therapist because, <laughs> because like, I mean, I'm good for you. This is, this has yeah, been a thing. Good. This has been a thing since I was a little, little kid and it drives my wife nuts. I'm like, I need more words. I need you to give more words to me. Tell me how good I'm doing, please. And it's man, I can be needy, super needy. And, uh, you he, know, he, he can. I can. I definitely can. But, uh, you know, all that to say, look at yourself and and think about what you want to deliver and what you are prepared to deliver. Um, I know we're we're over time right now, but I would like to try to bang out these last 
handful of questions um because i think some of them we could probably answer pretty quickly a lightning um, round maybe yeah i think so. yeah let's, do, let's it. do it okay so let's see how do you this is from uh rajar how do you predict what players will do next this one's easy ask them literally just ask them out of game between sessions send them a text or a message or hit them up when you're hanging out and say hi Please tell me what your character plans to do in the next session and preferably what their goals are for the next two sessions after that. And then they just oh. tell you and you prep for that. It's beautiful. Oh, this. I remember when I first met you and we started talking about prep for like Curse of Strahd and stuff. And I had started asking about that. And your answer was always, did, did you ask your players? I'm like, <laughs> oh, it's so simple. <laughs> yep yep God, it's, and it's as real. a corollary to that as well to make your life even easier what i always try to do is always end my sessions on a cliffhanger and that's not necessarily a tense cliffhanger where the players are like oh god what's going to happen next although that's always great but always end it as soon as i know what's going to happen next but the players don't Ooh. so like the players are setting off in the morning after taking a long rest um, or the players just took a long rest or the players are about to fight the boss or the players are taking their first steps into the dungeon. Because the benefit of that is, you know, on top of asking your players what they plan to do, you know what the first solid 20, 30 percent of the session is going to be. You already know what's going to happen. It's inevitable. The players have already set the wheels in motion. They're not going to change their course now. So that's that much less work you have to do. And that's not even prediction you have to do. You know what's going to happen. So all every the first, you know, 20, 30 percent of the session is just going to be a formality. There you go. Boom. Perfect. That's a beautiful answer. Um, all right. Next one from Starry. How do you avoid railroading? So this is so. The, the tricky thing about this question is that railroading has come to mean a massive, diffuse yeah. amount of things to a lot of different people. But as I originally understand the word to mean and how I find it meaningful to define in my own games, railroading is the act is the is the act of asking the players to exercise agency and then refusing to allow that agency to hold me. Mm. It, it is the act of saying, where do you want to go in town? You can go anywhere you want and then having nothing interesting happen and nothing meaningful happen unless they go to the place you want them to go. You know, it can also take the form of invisible walls where the, where the players have where you basically give the players the meaning and incentive and reason to, let's say, you know, I want to go uh, on this adventure. And then the DM says, you know, sorry that you're really excited about that, but these guards are going to kill you if you don't do what I tell you, which is do this thing. And mm. I think it's important to distinguish between linear campaigns and a railroading because railroading is the act of dictating to players what they are allowed to do and how they are allowed to do it. Mm. Whereas a linear campaign, just designing a linear session or a linear campaign is the act of giving the players reasons and opportunities to do the things that you want them to do. Ironically, it's not rail. Uh, well, actually, just to, to paraphrase George Costanza, it's not a <laughs> railroad if your players want to ride it. Doesn't matter if it's going uh, straight. Doesn't matter if it's only going one way. Doesn't matter if every station you've already accounted for and there are no branches. It's not a railroad if the players want to ride it. Mm. So, and that that's part and parcel of creating strong, dramatic questions that are tied into your players' interests and goals and values that stakes that matter to them with inciting incidents that are relevant to them and goals that they can meaningfully understand and work toward. Mm, I like that. It's not a railroad if they want to ride it. And that's 
That's that's true. You know, I mean, you even look at at video games, you know, big open world games versus, you know, linear uh, versus linear linearly designed games. And the I mean, Super Mario Brothers, the original NES freaking that's about as linear as you can get. You're going Mm -hmm. in a line from left to right. But people play the bejesus out of that game because it's still fun. It's a good time. Yeah. People honestly, sign up I, I, for it. Honestly, something even stronger that comes to mind is um, I was watching a video where someone was playing through a VR version of Half-Life 2. Um, but just kind of remembering Ooh. playing through Half-Life 2, there are all these outdoor sections, right? Where you're like riding um, like uh, a motorbike or something down an old highway and you have to go through these little towns and, and yeah. settlements and things along the way. As it turns out, if you try to go up the mountains, you can't do it. There's an invisible wall. If you try to like yep. go off the road into the woods, you can't do it. That That's not where you're supposed to go. There's no world there. Right. But it's not a railroad because why the hell would you want to do that? The, yep. the things you want to do, the things you want to achieve and the mechanisms you have to achieve, achieve them are on the road in front of you. You're not going to go toward the invisible walls because you're not interested in them. Mm. That's good design. That's not railroading. There's one path. But you're choosing to take it. There's mm. also a a certain subset of player that you know is just going to be resistant the moment that they see a rail, and then yep. there's and then there's others that go, oh, this is the rail that the DM wants. Let's see where it leads. You know, and so a lot of that is kind of just curating who you're playing with. Yeah, um, you don't want those those agents of chaos. Yep. No, and, and no, having those no shade to the actual yeah. agents of chaos over on Quest and Chaos. We love you guys. You're cool. <laughs> that's um, chaos agents. So, oh, that's true. That's true. <laughs> My bad. Easy mistake to make. Um. So next question, and this this one we paraphrased. Uh, our friend of the show, uh, Chris Lee, said, and this is. Again, the paraphrase version of it. How do you approach prep in a player-driven campaign? Yeah, so this is an interesting question. And from what I recall, the original form of it was about, you know, reactive DMing, where the players yeah. are the ones moving the plot forward and you're reacting to that. You know, if, if you've seen, again, coming back to Critical Role, Campaign 2, very much, as far as I can tell, this seems to be a very similar kind of campaign. It is player-driven. The DM mm. doesn't have some kind of grand plot that the players are falling into. It's what catches their eye? What do they want to look at, right? Yeah. And and just following from there, you know, building out the world as they investigate it, as they explore and, and as they push and pull things. Yep. Cause and, and effect. I think the important thing here would be, you know, just in terms of structure and design, right? You want to create meaningful options for them to choose so that there are things that they can push and pull out. There are things that tie into their, their, their stories, their interests, their goals. Um so that there are genuine options for them to explore. There are genuine, interesting things for them to look at. And from there, lean exceptionally hard into the ending on a cliffhanger mode of things. Mm. So as soon as the players say, huh, I want to rent a boat. I'm going to the marina. You say, okay, you revo- you uh, head off down the road. It'll pick up there next time. And the start of the next session is you arrive at the marina. I have now prepared everything interesting that is going on at the marina, yep. everything that you can interact with and explore with. Because now yeah. we've winnowed down the universe. Now there are different things that are going on. There's different intrigues. There are different things that you might interact with. And I understand the marina. It's very limited in scope. It has certain things that are going on there. And, you know, once all that is kind of used up and they're like, okay, we've we've stolen a boat now and we've befriended the... 
uh, warehouse thieves on the on the wharf, and we're sailing off to an island. You say, okay, uh, and you set sail, and behind you see the guards uh, crowding up, shouting at you, raising torch lamps as you sail victorious into the dark, uh, uh, star-lit sea, and we'll pick up there next time. And now your prep is designing the island they're sailing to when the stuff they experience on the way. Nice. Very, very good. So this next one was from Adam himself. That Ooh. was basically, how do you work up the motivation to prep? Well, kind of, you know, it's it's like you, there is a lot of, let's say, repeti- repetition that comes through that method. Like if when you're hitting your your checklist items, you know, mm-hmm. and and that can get very tedious, right? Um, you know, just just banging out the details. There mm-hmm. are things about it that that are enjoyable. Um, but especially if you're, you know, if you're doing this often, um, you know, you got to make it fun for yourself. So I actually experienced something like this just last week where I was planning on trying to plan out what the next arc for my, uh, current, you know, welcome to D and D campaign was going to be. And I had this idea, I had some like orc miniatures and I was trying to figure out what the, what the arc would be. And there was like this whole, oh, the orcs are raiding but also the town is hostile to them and there's like a, a two different orcs that are vying for power and the players going to be ally with one of them. And I was kind of thinking about it and trying to figure out an arc structure and a dramatic question and some challenges. And, you know, part of this was, I wasn't sure how it would shake out with my new players and how I would structure this as, as, as a narrative and gameplay experience. But on top mm. of that, I wasn't having fun with it. I wasn't really interested in these random orc story and this random, you know, generic, oh, you're you're in right. the, 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 the plateau or the grasslands and there's like this, you know, political intrigue and the town wants to go kill the orcs and there's all that. I didn't care. It wasn't interesting to me. So mm. I lit it on fire and I threw it in the trash. Not physically. Ah. I still have the miniatures. But I was like... <laughs> That's uh, a waste quote, of a good mini. <laughs> to quote Marie Kondo, it did not... Spark joy. Spark, Spark joy. joy. I got rid right. of it. And I started over. I threw it all away. And I was like, okay, what's something I'm interested in? And so I started browsing challenge rating two monsters because my players are level two. And I was like, huh, Nothics. Those are cool. I'm going to do something mm. with a Nothic. I'm interested in this. Yes. And everything came from there. Yeah. I found something that sparked an interest that I found fun to think about. And I got rid of all the crap that didn't interest me. And maybe that's easier Man, said I than w- done, but, but. You know, that I, I think that, you know, it was at least illuminating for me in, in kind of putting words to a sense that I, I feel like a lot of DMs have had have had where if it feels like work, get rid of the Change work it. and get something that feels like fun. Mm. Yeah, I, I really agree with that. I've been thinking about that a lot lately. Like, let's pivot. Let's change directions. Something big happens now or now we're all doing something else. Um, yeah, And I think mm. significantly. um Something that I tell to newer DMs a lot, your players have no idea what's going on in your head. Like uh, yeah. in, in screenwriting, there's a saying that the only thing that exists for the audience is what is shown on the screen. Anything on your screenplay that isn't visually or, or audio, audio depicted doesn't exist. True. So mm, not canon. If you ha- exactly. Not canon. So if you had a if you had a plan some, somewhere that you were going, right, and you're leading to a big climax of your arc and you just can't work up the motivation to care about it, your players haven't seen what you have planned yet. They don't know. It exists in this kind of weird Schrodinger state. All you, So you can get rid of it. You can trash it. You can throw everything out with nothing on your conscience. Your only obligation, you know, is find something that is fun for you, that you are passionate about, you know, that's better than what came before, and that isn't inconsistent with what you've already established, you know? Mm. There are an infinite number of endings to every story. 
uh, that are not inconsistent with the story that unfolded before them. So mm-hmm. pick the one that's your favorite. Man, that's that's like really nice. <laughs> I <laughs> I I do I do like just the overall sound of that. Like the you know it's 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 got a lot of like judgment free zone kind of vibes where it's like you know just if you don't dig what you've been doing, just stop doing it. Yep. And try doing something else and it's okay. And that's man, that's that's really great. I it's a it's a beautiful idea in its simplicity. So um I I at least personally really appreciate that. Um so we've got we've got one more question. This is one that I'm that I'm kind of excited for. Uh Leroy put this out there and I know that you sir have a an extra answer to this beyond just uh the the basic answer so the question is how do you balance encounters and i know for D specifically you've got an extra little tool that i hope to god you mentioned because it's pretty impressive <laughs> yeah <don't>. absolutely <laughs> um so I'm actually going to start this a little bit of a step back, funnily enough. Um, and, then, and then we'll talk about the tool in a second. Cool. Um, generally speaking, something that a lot of us DMs or GMs don't, don't grapple with enough that I think we should more and that I know I should more is this idea of acceptable outcomes in our encounters, mm. right? Like, again, going down the list of challenges, we've got combat, we've got social, we've got puzzle, We've got obstacles and we've got skill challenges. And skill challenges are kind of weird because they don't really exist, at least not in 5th edition. Talking about D&D, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you're designing a challenge, you need to think for yourself up front, what outcomes am I and the players willing to accept as a result of this challenge? If this is a random random, random encounter with, um, let's say, a bunch of dire wolves on the road, you know, going from a... A degree of outcomes, right? Let's let's say the top one is outstanding. You get everything you wanted plus a bonus, right? Uh, let's say you beat the dire wolves and one of the dire wolves uh, was actually a magical dire wolf. And by killing it, you get three wishes, right? That's an outstanding Ooh, outcome. Wow. Then there is six, a successful outcome where you kill the dire wolves and uh, you get everything you wanted. It, it's a walk in the park. Then there's a mostly successful outcome where you kill the dire wolves but you took a lot of damage. One of you got knocked unconscious. Maybe you've got like a bite that's bleeding or infected, you know, mostly successful, but there's some drawbacks there. Then there's, you know, mostly unsuccessful where the dire wolves beat you the heck up. It was terrible. Mm. It was awful. But then, you know, a hunter or a nice ranger came in and rescued you. And while you got humiliated and the dire wolves, you know, let's, let's say that, uh, they're, uh, they're, they're very smart dire wolves, the ratatouille dire wolves. And they, they <laughs> took your wallet. So now, now you got beaten up by oh, direwolves and they took your no. wallet. Uh, but then the nice ranger comes along and says, all right, direwolves, leave them alone and clears them out. And now you have a new friend. That's a mostly unsuccessful encounter. And then there's unsuccessful, where the direwolves come by, beat you up, take your wallet, and then pull out a rocket ship, <laughs> and then they leave. Uh, that's an unsuccessful encounter. And then a devastating encounter, the lowest level is you don't get anything you wanted, and it's even worse than you could have imagined, where the direwolves come by, they beat you up, they take your wallet, they shoot you, and then they look in your wallet, and uh, your driver's license is in there, and then they use it to commit a crime spree, crime spree across three states, thereby defaming you after your untimely death. That's a devastating outcome. That's terrible. And obviously, and then the lead direwolf comes and takes your wife, and they go <laughs> yeah. live happily ever after, and they send you postcards with smiling <laughs> pictures, and it's just the worst. Yep. What a jerk, uh, direwolf. But like in practice, right? 
uh, you know, let's let's say there's a fight scene <laughs> in an inn, right? Um, a devastating encounter for that for that Jeez. might be you lose the encounter and also the inn burns down and like innocents get hurt. And also the the treasure you're protecting Oof. is lost. That's a devastating. Like even when the yeah. even when it be even when the fight began, the stakes escalated beyond what you could have expected, such that it was a mm. devastating outcome. You lost even more than you could have imagined. And so every time you are preparing a challenge, whether it's a social encounter where you need to kind of persuade or bully or deceive an NPC or a combat encounter or anything like that, you need to decide up front. What are the range of outcomes that I and my players are willing to accept as a result of this? Mm. If it's just a random encounter with direwolves on the road, chances are pretty good that, if not you, probably not your players are willing to accept even a mostly unsuccessful outcome. They're not, they're just not going to accept that. That's not okay because narratively, thematically, you know, getting beat up by a random encounter on the side of the road is not what most people consider satisfying. So this right. encounter and but does it make sense for the direwolves to have three wishes? Probably not. So this is going to be an encounter that's either mostly successful or successful. And that's the range of possible outcomes that you find mm. that, you, that you've narrowed it down to. So now, you know, that there's no chance that the direwolves are going to beat your players up. Now it's time to calibrate the difficulty. And this is where we get to the part you were alluding to, I think. Yeah. You really do the balancing of the combat encounter. And the way that I've approached this is, um, like many people, I was very dissatisfied with the way that 5th edition balances combat. So the combat building system I found was very inconsistent, produced either very hard encounters at very low levels or very um, easy encounters at very high levels. And, you know, I wound up doing this long research project. To to cut a long story short, I found that the way that the 5e encounter building system is set up is grossly out of proportion with how the math actually works. People call Mm. this idea action economy. But what I basically found to to kind of very briefly touch on mathematics was that um, encounter difficulty scales. um, I'm not a math expert. I, I, I had a friend helping me out with the mathy parts. Uh, anything beyond just basic, you know, spreadsheets, spreadsheets I can do. Um, I think it was encounters scale uh, quadratically. No, I don't think it's exponential. I think this worked quadratically with every additional monster or no, actually, no, it was exponentially because I remember it was not logarithmically. So they scale exponentially with every additional monster that you add. The difficulty grows exponentially, not linearly, which is what wizards math table suggest. And don't worry mm. if you're not following this. This is just background context. And so what I did was I reworked the whole math and I did a whole bunch of, of work to try to get benchmarks for the system and figuring out how everything worked. And I made a system that I call challenge rating 2.0, which is slightly misleading in terms of the name um, because it doesn't actually change challenge rating. What it does is instead of using experience points to calculate difficulty, it assigns power to every creature and power is calculated as, you know, just by CR, a CR one fourth monster has a certain amount of power. A level three player has a certain amount of power and so on. And so the idea is that by, uh, adding up all the power of the players, you know, you know, if if you if four players have say together twenty five power, an encounter with four, let's say, uh, goblins, if if they have twenty five power and I put them against the players, they are evenly matched. The players and goblins will hit zero hit points at the same time, approximately, and so the players will need to get a little lucky or a little skill to take the goblins out. This is an encounter as a benchmark that I would say straddles the line between mostly successful and mostly unsuccessful, right? Mm. Uh, maybe even dipping a little into unsuccessful, where it is on the borderline. It could go either way, depending on how things, how the players play it and how the dice roll. Mm. Um, but for our direwolves encounter, we know that's not that's not acceptable. The players cannot be allowed to lose, cannot be allowed to come close to losing. This is a mostly successful or successful zone. So 
we decrease the total monster power. Now it's going to be, let's say, 20 monster power to 25 monster power. So that means the players are going to spend a certain percentage of their hit points on it, a certain percentage of their resources, and, and it, it's simplified in the actual system. Uh, believe me, it makes more sense when you're working at it, out, it out in person. But the idea is that you know now that we know what range of possibilities are acceptable to us, we can calibrate the account encounter relative to the player's power to be as difficult or as easy as we want. And mm. you stack all these together over the course of the adventuring day, and because now you know how many hit points approximately your encounters are going to draw each encounter, you could scaffold these so that, you know, by the end of the adventuring day, your players have spent as many resources, be that hit dice, spell slots, whatever, that you wanted them to spend. And, you know, that, that the ability to have that kind of intentional gameplay design at an intentional level of challenge, I think is very powerful. And so that was a very long way to answer that question, but hopefully mm. it was helpful or illuminating in some way. I've... I've been hearing um, that your CR 2.0 uh, method has been getting a lot of positive traction. Is that, yeah, I, is I that pretty been, accurate? How's the feedback been? Oh, the feedback's been great. Um, you know, there are some cases where, you know, obviously players will be optimized beyond the system's ability to really compensate for that. Um, for example, I, the system cannot and will never be able to accommodate a Twilight Cleric. It just can't. Twilight Clerics are functionally, <laughs> I've done the math, equivalent to like three players on their own. It's it's insane. It, it's oh, terrible. Oh my that's, God. That's they are busted. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've done the math. It, it It's very silly. And, um, but in general, aside from those edge cases, I've had lots of positive feedback where people have told me that I had the boss encounter I've always dreamed of running. Like, it was perfect. My players were down to the wire. They spent all their spell slots in a way that wasn't intuitive before and that the fifth edition system would never have led me to. Um, but it worked out, you know? And oh, I've also had success so cool. in my own games where... I'm running for first level players and, you know, according to legend, first level players are very fragile, right? They're very easy to accidentally kill, but no, that's wrong. Turns out the fifth edition encounter building system is just overtuned for first level encounters. And as it turns out, if you build them appropriately using CR zero, CR one eighth, maybe a CR one fourth or a CR one half monster here or there and using CR one monsters very, very sparingly, those encounters are actually as reasonably balanced as you find at any other tier of play. You just have to know how the numbers stack up. That's fantastic. There's one, there's one thing for sure. You know, any method is better than what the DMG says. It's just not even close. I think that I was watching uh, like a tree monk temple video on it. I don't know if you've ever seen his stuff, Dragna. Um, but like they like actually broke it down in mathematical terms, why it's mm -hmm. just complete nonsense. Um, yeah, I, I, but I would be interested in, in giving it a try. I've actually personally just stopped in counterbalancing, uh, which is kind of weird for me. Cause I used to really be my, uh, one of, one of my like core philosophies. Um, and this, this is one way I was, was influenced by spike is, um, just putting in the things that the world would have and then, you know, making sure that the players kind of have that information and mm. having them address the encounter differently based on those parameters. I was wondering what you thought of that style. So I think that's a, definitely a very valid style, but um, kind of to take a little spin on that, um, you know, there are different kinds of players, right? And they have different kinds of expectations. And the mm. way that I found is you can usually plot them on two axes. There are, there's the optimization axis, which is how much time and effort I'm going to put into building a strong character, into using sound tactics and strategy. 
And then there is the, for lack of a better word, I'm going to call the okay with dying axis. Are you okay (laughs) with losing and losing your character and being defeated? Or are you not okay with that? Right. And through Mm. these two axes, you can separate player types into what I like to call four quadrants where you have challengers. I like to call them challengers where they like to optimize. They like to be tactical, but they don't mind losing. This is your classic Mm. AD and D dungeon crawl player. This is your tomb of horrors player where, yeah, I'm going to die. I'm going to make new characters, but the challenge, the proving yourself is part of the fun. Yeah. Um, then there's explorers. Explorers aren't going to make any effort. They're not going to optimize their characters, but they don't mind dying. They're just here to see cool stuff and go along for the ride. They're exploring. Mm. And, you know, hey, my character might die to a zombie T-Rex, but at least it'll be funny. It'll make a good story to tell. Right. There you go. Uh, then you have what I like to call champions. Champions are what everyone else calls munchkins or optimizers. Mm. They are. They are here to kick ass and take names. Uh, They have put a lot of thought and effort into making their character the most powerful, unbeatable thing around, and they don't want to lose that. Sure, Hex played Paladin of Vengeance. Exactly. They want to feel powerful. (laughs) They want that power fantasy. They want to see, you know, it's like the equivalent of, um, you know, you know, getting a big paycheck and then waving your money around at the candy store. Like, you want to feel like you can splurge. You want to feel like nothing is a threat to you. You want mm-hmm. to feel powerful. And so if those players, you know, suddenly start coming close to death, they're not going to be happy because I specifically optimized my character so that I wouldn't have to struggle or work hard. So I mean, it must be a problem with the game or you being unfair to me. Exactly. Or something. And there's the the tantrum that ensues. Yeah, exactly. And like they have a, and I want to be clear, they have a valid right to play the game this way, you know? Uh, they view Dungeons and Dragons as a skill to be mastered, and they want to feel rewarded for mastering that craft. You know, mm-hmm. uh, they don't want their reward to be more work. They want their <laughs> reward to be put your kick your feet up on the desk and ha- and you know have a coffee and you know watch your <laughs> optimized build go to work for you. Mm-hmm. That's what they're that, here for, and and they deserve true. to have that in the games that that they play. And then the last group, I like to I affectionately call them protagonists. And you see this a lot, especially in a lot of newer players, especially the critical role generation of D&D players, where they are not willing to lose their characters. They are not willing to to accept defeat, but they're not really going to work very hard to get around it. And I want to say up front, I'm not being judgmental here. This is a valid way to play the game. Not everyone mm. enjoys tactics. Not everyone enjoys number crunching or optimizing or researching treant builds on YouTube, right? It's okay to want to play your character, enjoy the game, invest emotionally in NPCs in the world and the story, but also not want to lose that connection because mm. that character is personal. It's meaningful to you. It's not just your avatar to view the world. It's it's something and someone that you created. You don't want to lose that. That story mm. is meaningful to you. And so these players, this kind of player, which I would argue makes up a plurality, if not a majority of modern day D&D players, they expect they need in counterbalancing. I mean, the champions do too, um, but to a lesser extent, because they don't mind if the encounters are too easy for them. But protagonists mm. They need encounters that will make them feel threatened, but never actually put them in danger because they need to feel like heroes. Mm. But, you know, the the world is going to bend around them to make sure that their story gets told. And that's not a bad thing, Mm. but it does mean you need to be very conscious of how you're building the world of the game. And unfortunately, most Witches of the Coast modules, especially those that are infamous for having deadly low level encounters like the Cult of the Dead 3 and Descent of a into Avernus or the Goblin Ambush or Clark and Lost Mine of Phandelver, 
these are modules built for an older generation of players. These are modules built for challengers and explorers. Mm. And they're not enjoyable experiences for protagonists. Lost Might of Fendelver brings you up to a CR7 um, young green dragon at level three and says, go beat it up. That's a challenger true. will happily accept that task. A protagonist can't wrap their head around it. Hmm. Man, I haven't yeah, thought it's about a little that bit in like, a long uh, time. It's, it's like the Bartles taxonomy episode we did a long time ago where it had that quadrant of yep. different player types, but it's specific to the way we can look at modern D&D now. And, and, and like as you're going through and uh, explaining each of them, they're, they're, these are very familiar players very. to me that, I've, mm-hmm. that I have seen. Um, and so I think that the wisdom here is... Um, various methods can apply, but know your audience. Yep. Um, yeah. And who you want to be your audience. Um, 100%. So solid advice, man. Man. Cheers. Thank Very. you for uh, giving me an excuse to go ranting about it. Oh, we totally. love rants. That's what we do here. That, it uh, is. <laughs> there, there, there have been some rants recently, but you know, sometimes we just need to get the stuff off our chests. Um, and that, and that's okay. That's okay. Because part of the secret ingredient is listening to one another. And sometimes we just need to chat. I know, uh, you Dragna and I have been chatting back and forth on, on discord, just typing like crazy today. And like there, you know, we worked through some stuff and I'll tell you, there is nothing quite as satisfying as helping a pal figure something out that's been driving them nuts and 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 getting somewhere with it like that's that's a good feeling and it's uh it's good to have people that you can rant to when you need to you know i'm into that yeah baby so i know we have gotten way over time um dragna i want to thank you again for hanging out with us tonight um everybody make sure you send him a big thank you because he is an east coast man so while it's <laughs> nine o'clock here it's like one in the morning over there or something and uh i i speaking for all of us we really appreciate you uh being so generous with your time and uh just being also generous with with your wisdom and all the things that uh your your hard-won knowledge that uh i i really appreciate it oh thank you guys you know although i guess i should thank you as well if there's one thing i like to do it's hear myself talk i think so thank you again very much for having me on it's always a pleasure that's a key trait of every gm fair enough i can't deny that you do need it you do need it all right y'all well take some time think about the stuff we talked about in this episode you know think about how you look at your own prep experience and see if there are maybe some changes that uh, that you want to make. I also want to encourage everyone, if you want to support our show, head on over to patreon.com slash inspiration point. Check out the different tiers. Join our Discord. Come hang out with us. We'd love to have you. And also, please go check out Dragna's Discord over at, uh, not his Discord, his Patreon over at patreon.com slash Dragnacarta. Get a hold of some of those tasty, tasty GM resources and tools. They're awesome, and they will do you a world of good. And until next time, stay inspired. Bye!
Bye-bye, everybody. <laughs> Have a good one.